Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest, Assistant Professor Saverio Gentile. He's part of the Department of Medicine and Medical Specialties, part of the College of Medicine at University of Illinois. And we're going to talk about his work in cancer. And specifically, he has um, some very promising updates on how ion channels in cells may modulate uh, cancer. So, Saverio, thanks for coming back. Oh, I'm very, very welcome. Thank you a lot. So, uh, the first update, I'm actually a associate professor and I'm moving to the Medical University of South Carolina. So I'll be here for one more month, and then I'm going to go to the sunny sky of South Carolina. Yeah. So, yeah. Were, were you an assistant professor, and now you're an associate, or what's the yeah, order? Yeah, yeah, Sorry, yeah. I got that wrong. No, that's fine. That's fine. So, yeah. No, the story with the ion channel in cancer is moving forward, and then we're very excited about this new set of data I'm telling you in a second. As you know, I mean, this, this class of proteins have been uh, – uh, the center of attention this past decade or so, not necessarily for the classical works that have been done on uh, neurons and cardiac myocytes or body compartments. But um, well, if you don't mind, before we jump in, can we back up a little bit? Yeah. I don't know if listeners know what ion channels are in cells and where they are and what their functions are. I know they have sure. myriad functions. Can we just talk about that briefly first? Absolutely. So ion channels is a class of proteins that are absolutely fundamental for almost every single cellular events and therefore tissue function. Uh, these are a class of proteins that are normally located on uh, membranes. And this can be the surface membrane, also called as a plasma membrane, but also membranes of other cellular compartments like the mitochondria, for example. Or, uh, so we find these proteins a little bit everywhere as long as there is a membrane. And uh, they play a major, major role, which is controlling the ionic gradients. So ions such as uh, sodium, potassium, chloride, calcium, 
This seems to be the most four important ions. They go in and out the cell and in and out any uh, cellular compartment. And in order to allow this flux, the inside to the outside or vice versa of the cell, you need a specific type of proteins, which are called ion channels. And they create uh, fluxes because ions move passively through according to their gradients. And there are special reasons why actually cells tend to accumulate potassium chloride inside. And that happens because pumps are involved into this process. And the idea is to maintain gradient. In this case, is potassium, but everything else uh, follows after, meaning that when you change this gradient of potassium chloride, then gradients for other ions also change. What are some, ex- these, so these are structures, these are not just proteins, but they're structures, they're channels into and out of the cell membrane through which stuff can pass both in and out, right? Right. Well, this stuff is actually ions. So some of these uh, ion channels are extremely selective. Potassium chloride, for example, are famous because only potassium goes through. Imagine like a soccer ball going through a, a channel can go because of specific size. But then if you have a, a golf ball that can go through the same channel, well, it won't happen because the selectivity for the potassium channel is so high that only potassium can go through and not even sodium, which is smaller than potassium, can pass through. So these are very, very selective proteins. And then there are some other subclasses uh, of the same proteins that are a little bit less selective. But the idea still is to maintain to this uh, ionic gradient between uh, different sides of the membrane. And according to whether what ion channel is open, whatever channel is closed, then you have potassium going through the membrane and that drives driving force for other ions to move as well. So basically imagine like uh, the population of ion channels sitting, for example, in a surface membrane, they allow different type of ions going through, but this activity is like a concert, right? It's a, there's a potassium channel opens that determine the, the opening of other ion channels. And so you have potassium going in and out, calcium going in and out, chloride going in and out. So one of the most important of this class of proteins are calcium channels. And that is because calcium is one of the most important messenger in a cell. Calcium is important for a variety of things. For example, keeping the integrity of DNA. So, right, DNA has the shape that it has because it binds calcium. That is for maintaining the structure of something. But then calcium is also an ion that activates, uh, for example, kinases or phosphatases. So you have a bunch of signaling that actually downstream the entrance of this calcium. And in terms of muscles, for example, calcium goes inside. Oh, and I, yeah. You have a oh, question? Sorry, you're already doing it, but I just wanted to know like some of the, um, again, the very basic functions of ion channels and cells, but you're, you're starting to describe them, but yeah, just yeah, keep going so on what basic functions. The point is, the point is what type of, of, of ion channel you're looking at, what type of tissue you're considering, and what could be the potential consequences, either the opening or the closing of the channel. Neurons, we know that ions are actually controlling what's called uh, the electrical signaling when you have the generation of action potential, which uh, allows a specific information to move from one neuron to another through also what is called a chemical action potential and so on. In muscles, not only we have the transmission of an electrical message, but also a mechanical event happens because then calcium binds a bunch of other, other proteins that allows the contraction to happen. These proteins have been vastly studied, mostly in neurons, mostly in cardiomyocytes. But in the more recent years, 
this protein's also been studied in a variety of other cell types and are not necessarily neurons, muscles. And for example, a secretion of uh, insulin, just an example, is allowed because the activity of specific ion channel. And so therefore, the homeostasis of a cell and therefore the homeostasis of a tissue is guaranteed by the correct functioning of uh, a class of proteins called ion channels. As, as I mentioned before, they don't work alone. They work in a concert so that the activity on one ion channel, it might determine the activity of another ion channel. And through this fluxes of ions in and out of the cell, you have a variety of events that can go from contraction all the way up to even proliferation or migration of cells. Hearing, I guess, like the Death Star from Star Wars and all the ships coming in and out of it through little ports and holes, is that a, you know, like a fair representation of us, how a cell looks with its ion channels? Well, in a way, but you have to consider that when uh, an ion goes inside the cell, it's not just a, as passive as a ship, a warship will, will stay in the hangar. This ion will activate things. As I mentioned before, for example, there are uh, kinases, which are a class of proteins completely different from ion channels. But these kinases or phosphatases can, for example, be activated by fluxes of ions like fluxes of calcium, for example. The chemkinase 2 is one of the most famous for all. Calcineurin is a phosphatase is activated by calcium. And not just the uh, uh, proteins that stay in the cytoplasm, which of course activates a bunch of signaling that uh, locates in the cytoplasm. But calcium can actually activate transcription factors. For example, NFAT is one of the most famous transcription factors activated by calcium. So, however, to control this calcium entry because calcium is so important, and it is so important that if you have too much, it's very bad for cells, as well as if you have too little, it's very bad for cells. That implies that controlling, for example, calcium is extremely important. Now, how do you control calcium? That you can do it, of course, through the different type of calcium channels that are available. But then, for example, potassium ion channel activity can help the control of calcium entry. And because as I mentioned before, ion channels don't work alone. They also look at each other. They also talk to each other so that in the end, they can keep the ionic gradients appropriate for whatever is the signaling that they need to activate in a specific cellular event. How do they uh, communicate with each other? Is there like um, various degrees or levels of homeostasis? Like is the cell as a whole evaluating the condition of all its ion channels at once and then determining what to do? Right. So there are several, there are several ways that uh, ion channels talk to each other. For example, there are some potassium channels that are activated by calcium ions. These are called the SK or the BK channel. So these are potassium channels, right? So they make a hole in the membrane. They form a hole in the membrane through which potassium can go through. But in order to open this potassium channel, you need calcium. So a calcium ion will bind a specific region of this potassium channel that then will change the conformation of this protein. And finally, the potassium can go through the potassium channel. But also there are other ways. For example, a very famous is uh, the example where you see that phosphorylation can change the activity of a specific ion channel. And so therefore you have that if a kinase is activated by calcium, for example, here now you have that calcium entry will activate a kinase that eventually phosphorylated an ion channel, which now changes the activity. And there are many other reasons. For example, also there are ion channels that allow 
the flux of ions to these specific ion channels will allow the synthesis of new ion channels. And so there are several ways through which ion channels can control each other. And uh, of course, it is, it's all monitored and it's all under a very sophisticated system that detects the status of the cell. So the cell decides when things can be activated and when things can be inactivated. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Has anyone ever observed um, viruses or bacteria using the channels to transmit material or to travel through a channel themselves? Yeah, that's an interesting thing. So bacteria do have ion channels. It's a matter of fact that the very first ion channels or whatever crystallized was obtained from a bacteria. And because actually ion channels, as I mentioned before, they are absolutely fundamental for life. So it is one of the ancestral class of proteins and any living creature and any living cell has ion channel. Uh, however, on the other end, virus don't seem to have ion channel. Nevertheless, though, in order for a virus to kill cells, most of the time what they do have is the information for creating an ion channel. So that implies that when a virus infects a cell, then in the RNA or DNA that is injected into the cell, there is the information for producing, in this case, it's sort of be a potassium channel. Now the cells makes everything that the DNA tells them to make, including this potassium channel, which eventually will go on the surface membrane of the cell that has been infected. And by having an uncontrolled activity of this potassium channel, then the cells will die. And once it dies, all the virus finally that have been made are spread out. So even though virus most of the time don't have ion channels, they use ion channels in order to kill. So now ion channels don't really let any other entity to go through. There are some transporters that might allow some macromolecules like amino acids that are ionized or not. But normally ion channels only allow ions to go through. As I mentioned before, it can be more or less selective but there are only four ions. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Okay, and then you're looking at ion channels in regards to cancer. What have you observed in cancer cells? How are they utilizing ion channels differently? That's a great question, and of course, it's not an easy answer. The cancer cells are kind of interesting group of cells because we know them as being almost incapable of stop growing. They proliferate continuously, and uh, it seems that they do because they lost control over a variety of mechanisms, one of which, of course, is the mechanism that guarantees proliferation, but at the same time, the cells also don't die as much as any other, any other cell. They resist to insults much better than normal cells and so on. Now, another characteristic of this uh, type of, of cells is that they make a lot of proteins that are not normally even expressed in normal cells. They lost control over the synthesis of these proteins. Now, 
imposing this mechanism into a normal cell, if you make a cell producing a lot of something, most of the times will drive cell death. So the cell cannot really control an overwhelming amount of, of, of proteins. But cancer cells, in a way or another, have found a way, those that survive, of course, they found a way to deal with the idea they have too much of that particular protein. Now, among all the proteins, ion channels also are made in a way that is, is dysregulated. So first of all, what we found is that not all ion channels are made in a way that is out of control. It's a matter of fact that if you try to overexpress the vast majority of ion channels, the cells tend to die because you unbalance the ion ingredient so much that the cells cannot deal with it. And as I mentioned before, ion channels are so important that if you unscrew basically the mechanism, the cells cannot deal with it. But cancer cells, in a way or another, have found a way to either upregulate or downregulate that amount, specific amount of ion channels, and now they can actually survive to the presence of this abnormal expression. So what happened is that since they have now, they're using it. And if they're using it, they're using it for whatever the, the ion channel allows them to do. So for example, we're focusing on, on potassium channels specifically. And in my lab, we, we're looking at two things. One is why the cells have needs to have this potassium channels. And we're focusing on several one, the KV11.1, and one, one is the BK, one is the KIR6.2, which are some of the potassium channels in the subclass family of ion channels that cancer cells tend to either upregulate or downregulate. So why the cells need to do that? And one thing that we have found is that when you uh, manipulate the activity of this channel, what I mean is that when you make them working too much or too little or, or just block the channel, then one major event that occurs is that the cells stop proliferating, not necessarily die, but they stop proliferating. And most importantly, the cell cycle, which is organized in different phases, tends to stop in a specific phase, which can be the G0, G1, or the G2M. But basically what happened is that the hyperactivity or hypoactivity of a specific potassium channel controls this very sophisticated mechanism that is cell proliferation. That implies that cells actually tends to use this protein for the proliferative machinery. And the other thing that we were also looking at is, okay, now that we know that this channel is one, one second, Severo. How do you? What does that mean that, that it uses certain compounds to proliferate? Does it stick them out of the channel, and then other cells use it as like a quorum sensing type activity, where they they'll change their behavior, or is this like a you know extracellular vesicles released through the channels? Like how does one cell interact with another in this method? Well, not necessarily. We don't know yet. Actually, cells exchange ion channels. It might be though. But uh, once the cell expresses this protein. Now the protein is part of the, of the overall complex of protein that are available. And so the cells tend to use it. So to give you an example, we just actually have a, a review that might explain this a little bit better. So the idea is that in order for the cell to move from one cell cycle phase to the other, first of all, let me briefly explain what happened when the cell proliferate. The cell, in order to proliferate, it needs to go through a, a series of steps, one of which is they need to make more DNA. They need to make more things so that from one cell, you have a couple of everything. And then when a cell splits in two, each cells have the same type of components that the, the cell initial cell has, so the mother cell has. So you need to duplicate your DNA. You need to, to organize the, the inside of the cells in a way they can be split in two. 
So we as humans, basically, we have categorized this events in different phases. It's called G0, G1 is one phase, and then the S phase where the cells makes more DNA, and then the G2M where the cells start to getting ready and split in two. Each of this phase is characterized by the presence or the absence of a specific type of signaling in which the ion channels appear to play a major role. For example, if you think about, if you want to move from one cell cycle phase to another, then you need a variety of molecule, including calcium. So if you need more or less calcium, then you need ion channels that are activated or inactivated. Because of the calcium is the only way for calcium to go through the membrane is by activating a, a calcium channel. So therefore, cancer cells that has more of a specific calcium channel or any other ion channel will use this mechanism to make it the proliferation faster, to move from one cell cycle phase to the other in a faster way. And having a faster cell cycle that translates into having the duplication of one cell into two, of course, much faster than in a normal condition. And that's, that's maybe one of the most important mechanisms through which a normal cell uses only a specific type of ion channels because they need to move, they need to duplicate in a specific time window. But cancer cells that duplicate much faster and much more often that they will need more of that specific ion channels rather than another. Okay, but um, so items released by the ion channels, are they packaged at all? Or are they just naked enzymes or naked proteins that travel through interstitial fluid through other cells and go into their ion channels? Or how do you imagine there's this, um, this interaction amongst cells and their ion channel products? Well, the ion channels is a protein that sits on the, on the surface membrane, and I don't think it goes you know, walking around. It's the cell that makes more by synthesizing more. There are genes in our DNA, of course, that encodes for ion channels, and these genes in cancer cells have been, have been liberated by repressive mechanism that normally stops the transcription of this gene. Imagine like a, a, you have a library, and that's your DNA, and there are certain books that are not allowed to be read because otherwise cells are doing weird things. So cancer cells releases this, this suppression. And so now they start making more ion channels. Their normal cells are not made. And now the, once this gene is activated, now you have more protein and the more protein actually goes on the working in the cell that makes it. So ion channels don't really, they're not a, a transfer from one cell to another. But once the cell has that ion channel, it will use it and it will use it for the purposes more convenient for the cell. And in this case, by being a cancer cells, it, it will use it for proliferating more or moving more. Well, okay. Um, how, if you're able to do a survey of a single cell, how many ion channels do they have? And what's the relative populations of the different kinds? Right. That in a normal condition, that really depends on what type of cells are you, are you looking at. And that is because a different collection of ion channels, it will give you a different function for, for the cell. For example, if you look at neurons, right, that's where mostly voltage-gated ion channels have been studied. When I say voltage-gated, these are proteins that are activated by changes in voltage, like an electrical shock, okay? So if you need a neuron that needs to act very quickly, like in a fraction of a millisecond, then you need a collection of ion channels that can be opened and closed very, very quickly. But if you are now like a, a secretory cells, like let's say you are a beta cells in the pancreas, you need an event that is much, much slower than a fraction of a millisecond. And therefore you need another collection of ion channels that will allow this ionic flux happening in a slower pace that eventually would translate into a secretion. And, and so and so on. You can move a different cell type. So 
overall, I think there are about 400 genes that control for ion channels, but not all genes are encoded at the same time. And then, as I mentioned before, it really depends on what kind of cells you, you're looking at. In cancer cells, although, again, as I mentioned, there are 400 genes, which potentially they could all be expressed, cancer cells selectively express a certain type of ion channels and not all of them. That can happen for two reasons. One is because if they start, if a cell that is becoming carcinogenic or it is already a cancer cell, start producing for the wrong channel, then the cells actually will die and therefore you won't see it anymore. But sometimes cells start testing a little bit. They express one type of channel and see if it works. And if it works, they keep it. And if they keep it, they're going to use it because as I mentioned before, this tool now is going to be used for proliferating more and more and more, or less and less and less. It depends what the cancer cells really wants to do. What happens if a cell is in an environment where there's really nothing in the interstitium around it, with the activity of the ion channels just totally shut down? And under, quote unquote, like normal conditions, how much flow is there in and out of the channels? If you did like a, you know, a mass balance, what would you see? How much activity? Well, the ion channels, it, it, it really depends on what actually opens and closes the channel. So if you imagine that a cell that is surrounded by uh, other cells or surrounded by, let's say, in an experimental condition, we only have one cell, right? So still there are ion channels that work independently of whatever is outside. And that is because although there is a class of ion channels that are activated by ligands, and these ligands are normally found in the extracellular space, there are also a bunch of other ion channels that are activated by other stimuli, which are not necessarily ligands that are outside of the cell, rather they are inside of the cell. As I mentioned before, we can have calcium that can activate potassium channels. We can have ATP that can activate ion channels. We can, in some other circumstances, we have light that can activate ion channels. So in other words, ion channels, they are a large class subdivided in small classes, and each subclasses are actually controlled by a variety of stimuli. Some are extracellular like ligands, some other are not. So in cancer, is there an upregulation of certain channels or opening them more, or how does it work? Well, we're looking at a specific subclass of, of, uh, of channels that we found to be upregulated, and these are the voltage-gated channels. So in some extent, what we found is that uh, although this channel are not, for example, let's take, let's take a breast cancer. Breast cancer uh, are famous for being extremely heterogeneous, and they are subgrouped in a variety of different types of breast cancers. Yet in all different types of breast cancer, we found the expression of this potassium channel called KV11.1, also known as the HERG channel. Now, the HERG channel in normal tissue is expressed in the heart and is expressed in colon, for example, in the intestine, but not in tissue. They are not excitable. Where excitable, I mean, they generate action potential. And so the question is why a cell, either if it is a cancer cell, wants to have this KV11.1 potassium channel, which normally is known to play a major role in excitable tissues, such as neurons or cardiac myocytes, when actually breast cancer cell will never have an action potential. Well, it turns out the approach that we're following in the lab is very similar to what has been used for, for decades in looking at neurons. This channel makes iron, potassium ion going through the membrane, 
And therefore, there is an exchange of charges, an electrical charge. And that is because an ion is nothing more than an entity with an electrical charge. And so when you have a flux from one end to the other of the membrane, you do have exchanging of electrical charge. Now, in a neuron, this exchange is under a very strict control, and it happens very, very quickly, as, as also very quickly. Again, it can be a fraction of a millisecond. Now, in a cardiac myocytes, this, this exchange of ions, exchange of electrical charges, it can last for three or 400 milliseconds. It's much longer than in a neuron. But in cells that are non-excitable, the event actually will last much, much, much longer. Meaning that instead of looking in time frames of milliseconds, we are looking time frames of hours. And so therefore, these ion channels, once it's activated, it will allow this flux of ions going from one end to the other of the membrane. But rather than looking in the millisecond time frame, you have to look in hours and in days. For example, one approach that we use, and we're also using this approach because we found out that it could be actually therapeutically convenient when we stimulate this potassium channel. So we make this channel open for a long time. And we're talking about 24 hours, 48 hours. It's a brutal force of chronic activation of this potassium channel. The cells actually react to that. And they react in a different ways. But the most important event that we see, that's what I mentioned before from therapeutic reason, we see that the cancer cells now stop grow. They don't grow anymore. They don't proliferate anymore. And in a more extended way, they don't even move anymore. So which implies that this channel plays a major role, not necessarily for events that happen very quickly, like we've seen in neurons and in cardiac myocytes, but actually they control the fate of the cell by controlling mechanism that takes much, much longer in terms of hours and days. Has anyone been able to take a cell membrane and flatten it out and look you know, with an micro electron microscope and see what the channels look like, what kind of pore sizes and you know, morphologies they make, how many there are, the spacing, etc. Yeah, there have been several studies with that, not necessarily in cancer. The ion channel has been crystallized, which now it means now you literally have an object. You can look into details and you see how, for example, again, potassium channels tend to be formed by different subunits. The KV11.1 is a tetramer. And the tetramer means four subunits that assemble on the surface membrane. And how the way they interface with each other, they create literally a channel through which potassium can go. And the size of this channel is very well defined. And it's actually really fascinating because you see that the channel itself is organized in compartments, in compartments in which ions can go through. And the ions can go through because they exchange forces with the amino acids that form this channel up to the point that only one ion can actually go through in a very specific space of the channel. So a lot of details are known now about this uh, proteins from the single protein point of view. And things become even more and more interesting in terms of complexes, because now we know that ion channels not only are activated and inactivated, which practically speaking means either are open or closed. And then so it also what really seems to be very important is, for example, how long it takes an ion channel to open, how long it takes to close, for how long they stay open or stay closed. And these mechanisms are under control of a variety of other systems. For example, you can have what is called post-translational modification. So after the protein is made, after the protein is translated, the protein can undergo through changes. For example, phosphorylation can make a change. You have to consider that phosphorylation is nothing really more than sticking a very large negative charge in a specific spot of the ion channel. But this negative charge 
interferes electrically with the remaining part of the protein, and that can change the protein activity. For example, a phosphorylated ion channel can stay open longer than a non-phosphorylated ion channel. And this is one level, but there are also other levels. For example, ion channels can bind proteins that are intracellular. These partners now, after they bind the channel, they actually change the activity of the channel and they can make it, for example, again, channel open longer or stay closer, or either they can promote what is called the degradation of the channel. Let's say you have 10 channels for in, in a specific uh, area of the membrane, but then the, this protein partner binds the channel and removes the channel from the membrane. And therefore, you're going to change the overall ionic gradient because you are now removing one of the factors from the surface membrane. So in other words, there are many, many mechanisms that are known now that control the activity of the ion channels, which actually underlines the importance of these proteins, because not only you have now a hole on the membrane that opens and closes, but you have a bunch of more systems that control this hole and that controls how long it stays open, how long it stays closed in a very specific time, time window. Now, cancer cells, they use all these mechanisms and uh, because they're just cells. There's nothing more than any other cells. They have all the tools that any other cells have, only that cancer cells have the tendency to, have, to use those tools in a different way and to express these tools in a different time. And therefore, in terms of ion channels, they will control ion channels in a different way that the normal cells will do. So what do you think is going on to cause the differences in cancer cells? You said like they'll, they'll have channels that will stay open longer. Like what are some of the other differences that you've observed? It's a matter of time. As I mentioned before, the type of experiment we do, we're using pharmacological tools. These are drugs, they're molecules. They, we force the channel to, to stay open. And there are a variety of reasons why we're using that. And again, one of our purpose is to be to generate a therapeutic approach, which is convenient for doing that. But what we found is that when you make, for example, a potassium channel uh, to open for a long time, now what you have, you have that the cells tends to lose potassium because the inside of the cells is packed with potassium. So when you open this hole through which only potassium can go, the cell will lose potassium. But mechanistically speaking, what is really interesting is that once you remove potassium, what you're actually doing, you are removing a positive charge from the inside of the cell. Now, the inside of the cell, there's a balance between positive charges and negative charges. When you remove a positive charge, what you're actually doing, you are increasing the negative, the net negative charge inside the cell. So the inside becomes more negative. But as I mentioned before, we're talking about fluxes of ions. Now that you have the cells becoming more and more negative, this negative charge becomes an attractive force for a, another positive charge to get through, and one, one of which is calcium. Now, as I mentioned before, calcium is absolutely important, very, very essential for a variety of mechanisms. But when you force calcium to get through, through the stimulation of potassium channel, now you're forcing all this mechanism to be activated or inactivated. The most recent time, for example, we just published a paper in which we show that the stimulation of potassium channel, let potassium going out. Now calcium is attracted to get in. But one thing that this calcium does, it overwhelms the system, the mitochondria system. It accumulates into the mitochondria. And when that happens, the mitochondria suffers and it breaks. And now the mitochondria is not functional anymore. And now that the mitochondria doesn't function properly, it starts producing toxic entities, toxic compounds. They are called ROS. Does this lead to a change from oxfos over to uh, you know, a different respiration type? Eventually, 
Eventually, yes. Thank you. This is a really great question. Eventually, it does. So it also changes the metabolism of the cell. And think about it. now we have a cell that doesn't have the proper amount or the proper type of mitochondria after they would stimulate this potassium challenge. This is a cancer cell. So the cells have to try to do all the possible and the impossible thing to survive. One of which is trying to fix the mitochondria, but you have this insult that goes on and on and on for 24 hours. They're trying to remove the mitochondria, but in the end, what the cells are really suffering is lack of ATP because we know that mitochondria, one of the major function of this organelle is to produce ATP, which is really the energy of the cell. Now the cells have no ATP or not enough ATP. What we found is that the cells, even without any enough of this ATP, they try to compensate the system by switching the metabolism into what is called a Warburg effect. So the cells start making ATP through other mechanisms. For example, by activating autophagy, and autophagy is really nothing more than a big trash bin in which in this lysosomes are, are there to degrade everything that cells don't need anymore. And after this degradation, you produce macromolecule, including ATP. So in other words, the cell senses that the mitochondria is broken. And once it's broken, they try to make whatever they lack, which is ATP, and they activate these other systems like autophagy to, to, to produce ATP. And then all this happened because we are stimulating a potassium channel, which changes so, the ion ingredients. So, all right, how much of the exterior condition, you know, the interstitium that the cells are in governs the, uh, the health and ability of their ion channels? Do you think that this could be the process by which cancer, some cancers start? You know, maybe, the, again, the surrounding interstitium is, it has more calcium than it needs or less this or more that. And therefore, it activates the ion channels in a, you know, in a maladaptive way, which leads to mitochondrial damage, which leads to change in respiration, which leads to cancer. Whatever you said is all possible. It's all possible, and there are under experimentation by several labs. The interstitial space, yes, especially in cancer, when you have a, a large mass, and this large mass is not necessarily homogeneous. You can have the inside of the cancer that has less oxygen because it's less uh, vasculated, so there's less blood coming through compared to the extra cell at the extra external part of the mass, which has more, more uh, irrigation from the bloodstream. So you have more or less oxygen and so on. The interstitial space suffers this. So there are concentration of ions that can change according to what part of the tumor you're looking at. And this make more than changing the amount of ion channels, it would change the function of ion channels. Because as I mentioned before, the ion channels work because they allow ions to go through the membrane, but according to the gradients. And if you change the concentration of this ion, intracellular or extracellular in this case, you're going to change the function of the channel as well. Now, if this is the reason why a, a cell becomes carcinogenous, that is not understood yet. I don't think it's been done enough. Certainly, though, it appears that this is maybe one of the mechanisms that might drive the cancer to be more or less aggressive. Because if you are, for example, in a situation in which cancer is able to survive an environment that there's not enough oxygen, there's not enough blood, and yet this cancer still is very aggressive, the ion channel can play a major role in that because it's the ion channel that eventually will change the ionic gradient accordingly to whatever the cancer cell needs to do, which in this case is proliferation. Hmm. So what are your thoughts on uh, how to... You said you've forced ion channels to remain open, certain ones, and that kind of stopped the cancer cells from, you know, really doing anything. It sounds like they, they're still metabolizing, I guess, but they're just kind of in stasis in certain ways, right? Yes. This approach, it really depends 
of what cancer you're looking at. So the one example in which everything works, uh, let me say fine, is in the ovarian cancer, for example. In the ovarian cancer, it was funny because we found that a specific potassium channel that is normally is expressed in the ovaries, in the, these tissues, now in cancer cells is down-regulated. So it's not there anymore. It's much, much less. And so the, the approach is, says, okay, if it is less expressed, maybe the cancer cells doesn't want to have this channel. And therefore, what I can do, I can stimulate the activity of this channel with a channel activator. Then I'll tell you later what is the channel activator, which is kind of interesting. But the overall idea is that if now overstimulate this potassium channel, what happens to the cell? And what we found is that by stimulating the potassium channel, potassium goes out, calcium comes in, as I told you before, but that completely kills the mitochondria and it does it so quickly that the cancer cell is not able to recover or to counteract the stress. And that basically kills the cancer cells. We found that the cancer in, even in mice, now they've been injected with this particular drug that stimulates this potassium channel. Now this cancer is practically speaking is gone. Now, how can we move this in the therapeutic approach? Well, the molecule that I used for stimulating this potassium channel is an FDA approved molecule, and it is called minoxidil. So maybe, maybe you know minoxidil already because it's now patented to arrest hair loss under the name of Rogaine, right? It's, it's sold everywhere and actually seems to work too. However, minoxidil was initially discovered because of the antihypertensive effect. That is because it stimulated the potassium channel that we have in our arteries. Well, it turns out that this potassium channel is called the KIR 6.2. It's the same potassium channel that ovarian cancer cells don't want to have, down-regulates. So by using minoxidil as an activator of this channel, now we have a loss of potassium channel that drives the effect that I told you before, which eventually destroys the, the mitochondria. So we did all the preclinical experiment, including the in vivo, and we got recently got approval for activation of a clinical trial in which we will use minoxidil. We, we will test the effect of minoxidil, minoxidil on ovarian cancer patients that are resistant to the current therapy, including carboplatin. We'll see how it goes. We're really, we're really hoping that everything goes all right, because in this case, you understand the advantage that we have. We have a drug that is easy to use, have a very, very low toxicity for anything. But then there is this other example, the example of breast cancer. Of course, it's very different from the one I told you before. But when we stimulate the KV11.1 channel, which we found expressed in breast cancer, all different types of breast cancer, we saw an important thing that the cancer stops growing and also stops moving. So the cells don't move anymore because the stimulation of the channel alters a variety of mechanisms. But interesting enough, although they stop proliferating, they don't die. Now we're really interested in understanding why they don't die. Because if we understand why they don't die, let's say we found a mechanism that is very important for the cells to not die, we can stop that mechanism. And then we can think of a combinatorial approach in which in one cell, we stimulate the potassium channel. And then later, we actually block the mechanism of resistance. I'll give you an example. I told you before that the stimulation of potassium channel messes up the mitochondria and other cells try to make ATP through autophagy, right? So now the cell survives because autophagy becomes important because it makes ATP. Where there are molecules, there are drugs that can stop autophagy so that if we now stimulate the potassium channel and then we stop autophagy, now the cells cannot survive and they die. 
And now we are interested in understanding a variety of other mechanisms. For example, how the cells can survive the amount of superoxide, the ROS that are produced once the mitochondria are broken. And so we found a protein, it's called, well, we found other people have found that there's a protein called NRF2, which is a very important transcription factor for antioxidant genes. So the cell senses the presence of the ROS and they don't like the ROS. And so they start producing antioxidants. And once they produce antioxidant, now the amount of ROS, they are extremely dangerous for the cells. Now the amount of this ROS actually goes down and that's how the cells survive. But now I wanted to bring your attention to this point. Remember, we, we heard over and over and over that diets that uh, amplify, so put in this way, the antioxidant effects of some of uh, fruits or vegetables and so on, that seems to be very beneficial. But now think about if you are under a specific therapy that uses as advantage the production of ROS. For example, radiotherapy uses as advantage the fact that cells under, they produce ROS. And that this ROS, so the superoxide, are the reason why the cells die. But now if you take this patient and you give it an antioxidant diet, now this ROS are now reduced. And so the cancer cells are not dying anymore. So that, I'm not saying that the antioxidant diet is not good as a therapeutic approach. I'm saying is that everything needs to keep to be kept under a very special observation where everything is in a balance and you have to consider what you're doing in order to have the best possible outcome of the therapeutic effect. Mm. I don't know. I mean, all cells in your body have ion channels. I know they differ. It would seem like they would be um, very significant off-target effects. Like how do you, you'd have to do this, I guess, systemically, or could you do it locally? Is there some way to apply maybe... Maybe it sounds cuckoo, but could you selectively apply a, a certain electric field over an expansive tissue to make it more um, localized instead of systemic effect if you're able to introduce a drug locally somehow? That's, that's a great question. Okay. So, of course, when we started looking at these ion channels, we had this, this thing in mind. You're right. Many cells have ion channels. Many important tissue use ion channels in an extremely important way. So, I mostly paid attention to ion channels that are exquisitely expressed in cancer cells and in few other organs or no other organs. Let me tell you one thing. So for example, the KV11.1 is mostly expressed in the heart. And, and that's where you want to pay attention because you don't want to you don't want to screw up the activity of this channel. Otherwise you you ruin the function of the protein not of the organ. You can go on uh, under a very severe side effects. Therefore we're first using activator of the channel, the KV11.1, not the blocker. That is because if you block the channel, you might, you might undergo, but your heart can undergo what is called ventricular fibrillation. That is because the action potential, the, activity, the electrical activity of the heart can go in a, in a sort of a short circuit. And therefore, blockade of the channel favors that. But the stimulation of the channel doesn't cause that. It actually causes... Uh, no side effects. We haven't seen any side effect in the animal model that we used. And there are specific reasons because of that. And therefore we're using activators because we know that in vivo have caused no side effects. But then I also mentioned to you that some ion channels are only in cancer and no other organs. That is because during development, for example, the cell requires a certain type of ion channels that is not necessarily useful when the cell is, a, is in an adult stage of, of the body. And therefore, what happens is during development, they need the channel. But in an adult stage, they don't need the channel anymore. Well, it turns out that some of the channels have been re-expressed 
into cancer cells. And in this case, we find these channels only in cancer cells and no in any, any other body compartment. And hmm. One thing you can do, though, is also for a therapeutic point of view, and that's actually something we're going to explore more at the medical university in South Carolina. As I mentioned before, that's where I'm going to move the lab. It's, for example, topical application of channel activators. And uh, so you can actually direct your therapeutic approach uh, so that the drug that you're using, the pharmacological tool that you're using, is going to hit only the cancer and not the surrounding tissue. So there is a variety of other tricks that we can use that we have in our sleeves. Okay. Um, what, um, I mean, it sounds like it's you know very early stages for this. Um, is, there a, is there a ton of experimentation needed to really clarify if this is going to work? Or are you ready to start contemplating preclinical trials and seeing if this will, you know, if we can get this to clinic? Yes. So as I mentioned before, with the minoxidil approach, we are, we are now recruiting patients for testing minoxidil in ovarian cancer patients that are resistant to cisplatin. So this is a fast way to go because, again, we used a, a drug that is very well known and the pharmacological profile is very well known. The toxicity is extremely low and, and has been used widely all over the world by men and women, so with absolutely no, no side effects. So in this case, we, we use fast approach. However, you have to consider that any of the other molecules that we're using, for example, activators, are not necessarily already FDA approved. We are focusing on some of them. But therefore, for having a full test, we have to go through the entire uh, process. We have to do through toxicology. We have to study uh, how the body metabolizes the drug and so on. But I think mm. what's really important at this point uh, which it could be, of course, in this particular case, an early stage, is the proof of principle, which is now we can target a, a new class of proteins in cancer, which are which is called ion channels, which previously haven't been exploited. And if you think about it, we have so much already on the market in terms of molecules and drugs. You have to consider that in, in the entire pharmacopoeia, there are mostly three targets for all these drugs. These are GPCR, these are kinases, and, and then the third one is ion channels. Now, of course, I'm an ion channel guy, right? I'm an ion channel-centric person. And I can tell you, though, at every time you stimulate, not every time, but most of the time you stimulate a GPCR or you block a GPCR, the signaling that is downstream to this GPCR ends up by changing the activity of an ion channel. And that can happen through kinases as well, right? I mentioned to you that the second class of protein that's targeted by drugs are kinases. So when you block or stimulate a kinase, you're ending up also changing the activity of a potassium or a calcium channel, as I mentioned before. So therefore, what I'm meaning is that many, many, many drugs that are already on the market. They ending up by changing the activity of an ion channel. And therefore, we have an, enough molecule that potentially can be exploited for treatment right. of cancer because you manipulate the activity of an ion channel. It, it might be helpful for, uh, I don't know if you're going to slice through solid tumors and look at the um, the condition of ion channels from the outside to the inside because you have, you know, regular oxygen environments, a hypoxic to anoxic, that could tremendously modulate what happens in tumors. You know, I, I would guess that this would probably be easier for liquid cancers or, you know, like blood cancers, et cetera, first, and then tumors would be more complicated. Yes, you're, you're, you're perfectly right. This is one thing that we're planning to do. Uh, um, we can do immunohistochemistry investigation where we can see what type of ion channels are expressed inside the tumor versus the external part of the tumor. And hopefully we will know more and more about 
how this channel is going to work for changing a cancer cells, either being more or less aggressive. You're right, the, the liquid tumors also are characterized by the expression of specific ion channels rather than other. But there's a little bit more complicated because you have to literally inject whatever is the, the drug you're considering in the bloodstream as going to hit the heart no matter what. But still, the concept is the same. The idea is that if we're looking now at ion channels, we might discover scenarios that were not even considered before. I think we are among the few that actually have linked the activity of a potassium channel, which sits on the surface membrane, on the plasma membrane, the activity of the channel with mitochondria. And we are connecting now the ionic gradients to metabolism and then proliferation and then migration. In the end, changing the ionic gradients is really going to be absolutely relevant also in pathological conditions such as cancer, which of course is characterized by proliferation, but not necessarily. What I mean is that by looking, by using cancer cells as a model, we might actually even discover new things of what's going on in a normal cell. Because again, for the vast majority of time, this channel has been studied in neurons and cardiac myocytes, which happen to be cells that rarely proliferate or never proliferate. Mm. Well, very good. Uh, Severia, I know there's tons of questions left. You're the man to work on it. Um, where can people keep tabs on your progress? Where do they go? Well, again, and we are we are publishing more and more data and, and we have meetings to go, but I'm going to move to Medical University of South Carolina. And my email, my new email is not uh, uh, available yet, but uh, this time you can write at the S-G-E-N-T-I-L-E at U-I-C dot E-D-U. Actually, let me tell you, we are hiring, I'm looking for electrophysiologists in case uh, anyone listening might be interested for this new adventure in learning the electrical activity in cancer cells. And we're really excited to start this new project down in South Carolina. Excellent. Well, Severia, I always enjoy talking to you. I always learn a ton. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to see you again. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.